Hey everyone, it's Jen and Jess from the beauty podcast, Fat Mascara, here to talk about Sol de Janeiro. So many of the beauty experts we interview on our show say that the key to great skin is to treat every inch of your body with the same attention you give your face. One of our favorite ways to do that is with Sol de Janeiro's Beja Flor Elastic Cream, a rich body cream that's clinically proven to boost collagen and has been shown to improve skin crepiness on the chest in just two weeks. Plus, it's scented with Sol de Janeiro's Charosta 68 fragrance. Sol de Janeiro is offering you 10% off your first order on soldejanero.com and free shipping with the code ACAST10. That's S-O L-D-E-J-A-N-E-I-R-O soldejanero.com and use the code ACAST10 for 10% off. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and t-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. Hi, I'm Imran Ahmed, founder and CEO of The Business of Fashion, and welcome to the latest episode of the BOF podcast. Community feedback has always been a key pillar of helping to shape what we do here at BOF. And since we first launched the BOF podcast last year, recapping our favorite talks from Voices, you've been asking for more original podcast content too. So today, I'm happy to share our first episode of Inside Fashion where we will discuss important news and events from the week and hear from key figures across the fashion industry. You'll also get to meet members of our editorial team from around the world, sharing their stories and interviewing some of their favorite people from the industry. Today, I'll be joined by none other than our inimitable editor-at-large, Tim Blanks, to talk about what has been a very busy week in fashion news. Not only has Tim come back from the men's and haute couture shows, but there's also been a lot of breaking news this week, including the return of Hedy Sliman to Celine, the acquisition of YNAP by Richemont, and the controversy surrounding the racist notes and transphobic and homophobic videos that surfaced from Miroslava Duma. So there's a lot to discuss. Uh, We look forward to sharing more Inside Fashion episodes with you each week. But first, here's Tim Blanks and I talking about this week Inside Fashion. Hi, Tim. Hi, Imran. Welcome back. Thank you. You've been away for quite a few weeks now. Well, it was two weeks, but it, at times it felt like an eternity. Well, isn't that funny? Because I wanted to talk about why it felt like an eternity. There's so many things to talk about this week. You're just back from the men's shows and couture, and I don't remember a week recently that has had so many big news stories happen like one after another every single day. So I want to try to touch on all of that in our first inside fashion discussion 
And there's also never been a time which was so riven with rumor either. Okay, so we should talk about that yeah, as well. Yeah, definitely. I don't. Yeah, I think what it just goes to show is that no one knows anything. So I think working from a point of profound ignorance, we can weave a tissue of fashion fantasy. Okay, well that will make for a delightful end to this conversation. But before we get to that, um, let's talk about men's fashion week. It's you know. I didn't go to the men's shows this season, Mm -hmm. Um, but just looking at the schedule from afar, it seemed radically stripped back. Uh, In London and Milan were definitely bare bones. Mm -hmm. Paris was jammed to the rafters. Oh, that's interesting. Uh, Yeah, it it was... I, I mean, I felt like I did more in Paris this season than I have for a long time. Um... When I say that felt like I was away for an eternity, that is just that weird fashion time where you, you you lose sense of day and night after a little while. But but I think in in Paris it was it, it was particularly so. Uh, it, it felt like there were shows early and there were shows late. Um, it was a very very full schedule and more days. And then whereas in Milan that felt like there were less days. And if I look at my schedules from, say, 20 years ago... You I, found them recently. Oh, my God, I can't, I, I'm such a pet crack. It's to pack so crack what were... The, like, let's compare those schedules. I, 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 I mean, Men's Week in Paris would be a week, and there would be 10 or 12 things every day. And I would look at what I was going... I would look at what I was going to in the course of a day, and their names now that I don't... I can't put a oh, face yeah. to Oh, yeah, what was that one that you mentioned well, to I, me? I said, and Andrew, Alec- I said Andrew McKenzie because yeah. he, all his support material was so sophisticated and, and expansive. You know, his sort of lookbook things and so on were all, and his invitations were elaborate. And, and um, of course, after a while, it came back to me. Um, but, you know, obviously, I'd gone to quite a lot of Andrew McKenzie shows. Uh, anyway, that's his one name. There were, there, were, there, were, there were handfuls of them. But it was just the difference between then and now um, was was quite marked. I thought. So what were the you know in the in the paired back or bare bones schedules in in London and Milan? Like, what were were there any highlights for you that you instantly think about? I mean, it, it's one thing that stood out. I thought this season until the very, very end of the whole two weeks, which we will talk about, is that there weren't the the sort of Olympian peaks that you used to look forward to. There were always these kind of marquee shows that would that would anchor a week um, or a weekend as it is now uh, in some cases. And there wasn't that feeling of anticipation this time. Mm. Um, I... I, I I mean, I, I always looked. I always looked forward to. I mean, when you think about London, they'd always they'd, they'd, when the London schedule was fuller, there was a, a lot more going on, and there'd be shows that you would look forward to. Um, like what? Well, I mean, big shows, not necessarily. I mean, you'd anticipate the event, maybe Burberry or Tom Ford or um, Jonathan Anderson um, showing. And those are and all. Those no, are all off the London schedule they've now. Gone, they've gone gone elsewhere, um, or or moved to the. Um, consolidated in the women's week, which means the women's weeks are going to be, I think, a lot, a lot vibier, or you know, more. There'll be there'll be a lot more to talk about. Um, 
Well, that's not necessarily the case because it'll still be a women's show, but there'll be men's clothes in the women's show, and that will be the maybe a slight. Slight difference. Maybe it won't be a major difference. So no highlights. You're like resisting no, from naming I'm, I'm anybody. Saying, I'm, I'm saying like for London, um, what what I would look forward to now would be Craig Green, uh, Grace Wales Bonner, and Charles Jeffrey. Um, then there's the other the other shows that are around. Uh, I mean, I always I always love checking in on what uh, Lulu Kennedy is doing with Fashion East, for example. But in terms of shows that that I wouldn't want to miss, you know, it's those three now, uh, which is quite a recent development, which... Is that of, enough to sustain well, a whole Well, it sort of fashion? validates London as, as being a constant, constantly revolving mechanism, introducing, introducing and, um, and elevating new, new people. I mean, Grace and Charles are both new. Yeah. You know, they're both my students. Really? Yeah. Gosh. Yeah. It's kind what of amazing. And Kiko. What did you teach them? I taught them, um, well, that's another topic, but I taught them at, at St. <laughs> Martin's. in the world. Yeah. Oh, Kiko I saw, yes. I saw his show. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it, they're, they're people whose careers, uh, it's fascinating to watch them evolve. And also they, 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 they represent London so well, what, what you love, what you know and love about London. You know, the, the, actual, the individual voice and the... Uh, in some cases, anarchic sense of showmanship and the desire to uh, communicate uh, a worldview that that isn't necessarily a commercial one. Right. I mean, I thought Charles Jeffrey's show, working with Theo Adams's dance company, was spectacular. Um, mm. I tried to imagine what it would be like if you'd never actually seen a Theo Adams performance to be sitting in the front row because some of his dancers got awfully close to people's faces and they're just so brilliantly they're just so good at being over the top yeah and and they they, they were over the top through the whole show okay and 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 i thought that really that really made that it really made the, the show such a wonderful piece of theater and and at the same time amplifying what charles is doing what charles wants to do and he Charles is angry, and and he was communicating his anger with Theo's help, and it reminded me of of you know when you first saw McQueen shows um, and the element of of theatre that sort of with McQueen it was sort of theatre of cruelty and um, theatre of the absurd sometimes things getting awfully close to the edge and that's something that only London does. Yeah, and there's always somebody who's doing it really well in that yeah. season. This was Charles, so right now Charles it's Charles, yeah. and then in Milan, I mean, without Gucci, I guess there's Prada. Yeah, um, and and Prada, Prada is such an institution that, and you know, Prada and and institutions have their have their fallow moments and then their triumphant moments, and I really feel Mutual Prada has re-engaged with fashion. I think she would probably say the same thing. Um, after spending a lot of time focused on her foundation and, and you know, the, the, in, the, in the Fondazione Prada in Venice during the Biennale, the exhibition was so incredible. Um, and it, it sort of embodied everything that you ever loved about going to a Prada show. And you wished for that feeling to be back in the fashion. And now it is? Well, I think the show was pretty... It was conceptual, but it was 
really, really pointed, I thought, uh, to be sitting in, that, in, a, in, a, in a warehouse, an art warehouse, with all those gigantic crates that might or might not have been filled with huge canvases or sculptures or whatever. It was, I, I said, Raiders of the Lost Ark. It reminded me of that last scene in the warehouse. But then, of course, I probably need to bring my references up to this century because there's probably lots of people who don't even remember that scene or have <laughs> even seen that scene. But to be sitting in amidst um, all those huge big crates while the models, the men and the women walked in clothes that were a sort of pocket, a, a pocket history of Prada in a way. No, people um, loved, I mean, old school Prada fans loved the show. Yeah, because well, it, she went back to Black Nylon and she yeah. got those, she got the architects to reconceptualize Black, Black Nylon. But there was also this kind of, I thought, this slightly post-apocalyptic feeling of, you know, what would happen if you, if you, if you nuked a warehouse of Prada and everything recombined under the, <laughs> under, under the, under, in the glow of the atom. And so you've got all these different Prada prints mashed up on one, my favorite bananas, of course. Of course. I live for those bananas. Mashed up with other Prada prints. And, and then very interesting in the light of the fact that that show happened the day after the Hawaiian false alarm. And she used that nuclear beach print from a few years ago, that, which looked like Honolulu after the bomb. And there it was on the catwalk. It's really interesting when fashion coincides with reality or in, in lack of reality ways. in yeah. a way yeah because the alarm was as you said a yeah, false, false alarm. alarm but it elicited the reaction of a real one you know yeah. so that the alarm might have been false but the reaction was real um and that actually is the kind of thing you you go to prada for you go to those those strange dark echoes of of politics and economics and and then you know she adds her own um her own particular fashion point of view mm -hmm. which was uh, the, the it, it, she i guess she's tending towards dystopia a little bit she's angry as she was with the women. Charles is angry too. So is that, that's anger, a common anger, theme. Anger is an anger is an energy. Yeah. Um, uh, Johnny Rotten said that I think. Um, and you know it's hard not to be. And if if you're doing something which requires you to to draw on your innermost being to express yourself, then I think there's going to be a lot more anger. I, I just was reading at Sundance. There's a lot of very angry films. It's, mm -hmm. it's, well, well anger is definitely in the air but before we move on to paris do you do you honestly think milan and london men's weeks can survive or can justify their existence on the bare bones of these schedules it's well it's hard it's hard to know how much an economic uptick would change things um but the economy's doing well, Tim. Yeah, I know. All of the major, I yes, yeah, I know. And, and and whether that, I mean, the obvious the obvious direction that things are heading in is that the men's shows uh, absorbed into the women's week. Uh, I think when, ironically, the timing of the men's shows it's much, much would better. be much better. Yeah, it's, it'd be much better to do everything amalgamated on the men's calendar. Yeah. It's true, but that's obviously not what the direction is. I mean, human beings 
are never necessarily going to, well, we know well, won't work in their own best interests a lot of the time. I was just thinking, though, about the Milan men shows that there are, there are, the, there are obviously, there's way more than Prada to talk about. Um, what Francisco Riso, what Francesco Riso is doing at uh, Mani is really interesting. And more successful than the women's? Because people didn't really, and I mean, we went to that women's show. There wasn't like a great reaction to that women's Well, I, I think it's very much in the same vein. I think they're very compatible, those collections. This one was, it, if, if it felt to me like if Milan was looking for a Charles Jeffrey figure, it has it in him. But with a, a much a much sort of more perverse um, kind of old world point of view, you know, that that, that sort of Italian, um, that uh, sort of innate kind of an innate decadence, the innate decadence of a very old, very rich culture. Mm-hmm. Uh, it comes through in his work with a, this strange playfulness, this... Um, it's it's I find it quite eerie, but I love that. There's nothing I love at the moment. I'm finding I love eerie in fashion. I love that. Um, I love I love being enchanted and disturbed. Uh, and then then there's always Fendi, and this Fendi collection was extremely strong. Um, she uh, Sylvia had used as her artist collaborator this time Riley, mm-hmm. and Hey Riley is is one of my favorite Instagram mm-hmm. pages. Um, he. He had done visuals for her, and it's always fantastic to meet somebody who you hardly even believe exists, you know, because Instagram is very good at, 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 at creating these sort of mythic figures. Uh, you, you, I'm, I'm been meeting a few of them lately, and it's so it's so exciting to see that it's actually a real human being behind the site. Um, and then, then there's always this. There's always something just to remind you of how, how significant Milan is. Armani did a great show. And as he does... From just, time to time. From time to time, just to remind you of why he is or was in his time one of the five or six great revolutionaries in the history of fashion. Mm. Uh, this wasn't a revolutionary show, but it definitely was a, a reminder of how good he can be Sometimes. Yeah. Like, he can't be good all the time. I mean, he's had an incredible career. Mm. Um, so then, Milan, can Milan? you're saying, in between the lines in your very Tim Blanksy way, Blanksian way maybe, that there's still enough there to, to kind of justify having all of these people fly in from all over the world. Well, what would be interesting in the light of the, the Pity Wilma revival, it seems to me, in Florence, seems to me people are really talking about Pity again. Uh, you could almost see maybe How there'd be some together. kind of symbiosis there. Um, I, think, I think the point of the Pity Renaissance is that it has a real reason to exist. Business is done there. Mm-hmm. People go there to... to you know, um, right orders. Yeah, right orders. Yeah, uh, pin up their and also their they've been really clever about you know depending on your point of view, co-opting or um, celebrating you know design talent that normally wouldn't show at Pity. 
right over the years they've been really and their timing has been quite good they've like worked with the right people at the right time over the years yeah and I, and I think that I think they're getting almost getting more adept at that yeah um I mean I've seen amazing things at Pity the amazing designers given young designers with very very limited budgets generally normally given amazing opportunities to just let them let yeah, their imaginations totally. fly free so that people were talking about that and um and the the fact that Milan was compressed into more or less 3 days uh there was still there was still you could see things on appointment. I thought Angela Massoni's appointment, uh, she didn't show men's, she didn't do a show for her men's collection because she's amalgamating with the women's. Uh, in, in, she did that um, in September too. Yeah, and the the men, but the, the men's collection she showed was very strong. I, I guess we'll see what happens with that model. Hmm. If they're just presenting rather than showing, whether they feel that generates the... the heat the heat that they need yeah uh, i think like just about everything else at the moment this, this whole thing is in heavy transition mm. and let's talk quickly about the paris men's shows mm-hmm. you said it was ram yeah rammed yeah yeah i felt that there was a i felt and i also <clears throat> felt starting with the first day at, at eight o'clock at night gmbh from berlin um, did it live up to the hype well, it was a, it was a real it was it was one of those old school, um, surprisingly, uh, left wing designer situations. It, 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 who knew that that first night of sitting in horizontal rain and ice cold temperatures, in an abandoned railway on the platform of an abandoned railway station, was uh, or rail depot was going to be a foretaste of the entire ten days I spent in Paris, but. Um, it was, yeah, they were, I just, I think when designers are really, really good about talking about what they do, when, when you get the sense of how what they do comes naturally from, a, um, from how they're living and the, you know, their environment, like very much reflecting the way that they live and work in Berlin and also their experiences, that's making fashion more interesting that's mm. uh, making labels like that more interesting mm. more more um more interesting to me maybe than say off-white which showed the following morning and um i mean virgil abloh has set himself up as uh, or has been set up as the voice of a generation and uh i i'm i'm a little less engaged by where his clothes are coming from, I think that the you know the GMBH guys live. They they're living those clothes yeah. literally. Those clothes mirror their daily lives. Yeah. And with Virgil, I just saw. I guess everybody just keeps seeing a little bit too much Demna, or a little bit too much Magella, or and he does it unashamedly in a way. Like well, the... yeah, he uh, he, do, he does. He just called his collection business casual, and Demna did that whole businessman's thing at Balenciaga um, just a couple of seasons ago. I mean, if, if Virgil is truly reflecting the uh, voice of his generation, the, 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 the the sort of uh, preoccupations of his constituents, I, 
are they really looking to kind of fetishize businessmen's clothes? And I mean, it's just kind of internally strange. inconsistent in a way. It's a strange idea. Yeah. It's kind of maybe it's quite a predictable idea in a way. I don't know. Anything else from Paris? Oh God, tons. Yeah. What was your What was your absolute favorite show of the season? The men's season. Men's season. Yeah. My favorite show of the men's season. He scans his list. My favorite. The fav- my the favorite thing. My favorite thing that I saw was the Loewe presentation uh, from Jonathan Anderson. I loved. Uh, the P- Paris design duo M and M built a wonderful little environment for you know, in his it, normal in the normal space, yeah. showroom. Yes, um, in the Place Saint Sulpice, uh, the clothes were just were so. I want to say whimsical, but there are again a, there is this eeriness. I feel he's just in his own, literally his own world. There is no reference to anything else. Uh, I suppose there's a reference to the artisanal history of Loewe, but not in a way that anybody who knows Loewe for the last, who's followed Loewe for the last hundred and something years would recognize. Because it really is artisanal. A tiny little terracotta urns. Dangling, dangling from that, yeah. A dry cleaner's nightmare. And, um, and a shirt that looked like a lesson in seaman's knotting. Just, I, I just, it's, it's fascinating stuff. Uh, and, and then woven through it all is, is Loewe's rich heritage in suede and leather goods. But I, I think that the, the quirkiness, the character of, of what Jonathan's doing really draws me. And it's, I find it very convincing. And, and it seems to me, um, it would be it, it, it's the sort of thing I would look to fashion for in 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 a, in a world which has surrendered to a to a surprising degree to hoodies and track pants and and um, just variations of sportswear, literal sportswear. It's nice to see something which is so. I mean, it's reassuring to see something which is so so idiosyncratic hmm. and also which which has the, the weight of such an enormous fashion conglomerate behind it yeah i, I think that in it's funny that talking to um rick owens because i thought the rick owens show was very good as well but then an, another angry show which is interesting from him from him because he's usually so so stoic so zen um, and has, and you could almost see what he's been doing for the last few years as, as as his ongoing journey to serenity. He's looking for the light at the top of the mountain top. Well, this time um, going up the mountain, he was rolling back down to the bottom, like yeah. Sisyphus. He called the show Sisyphus, and I, and it was just this interesting sense that you know talking to him that you realize you can't have good without evil. You you, you 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 can't have light without dark that that everything exists in this relationship with with its opposite it's defined by its opposite in a way that that if everybody in the world was good then we would no longer know what goodness was um you sort of feel making a rather flimsy analogy here that someone like Jonathan Anderson with what he does 
highlights what everybody else is is doing maybe throws throws a light on what everybody else is doing can be a kind of complimentary light but in another way it is a sort of it's its own thing right yeah but it's it's the fact that it exists in that way is a comment on everything else that is happening yeah it sounds very obtuse. I think I'm losing. You know, I, I like I love Walter van Berendonck for that reason as well. That that somebody who is so utterly sui generis, if that's it, if that's how you pronounce that expression. I think it is. Yeah, um, is is the kind of show that I like going to. Yeah, people would say Conde Garcon for the same reason. Mm. The, um, that's not one favorite though. Like what? Like looking when it, when it is, it is. Yeah. When it's not. Looking back over, like if you were looking back in a few years, which show do you think will stand out? Maybe I'll ask you that way. From this season, what show would stand yeah. out? Yeah. Uh, for any reason at all? Yeah. That, I think probably the show that would stand out in terms of the response it got, and in terms of people remembering it would be Kim Jones's last show at Louis Vuitton. Yeah, we forgot about that one. Yeah, I would say that would probably be the the show that that because that was a that had that sense of event that that we have really been missing until we get to the next bit that we talk about where there was a show with such a strong sense of event that you realize how much you'd missed it yeah well let's talk about the couture shows because and that show yeah <laughs> that show um, with a sense of event yeah the but um we didn't talk about that more well, you missed it, so you, no, you didn't. didn't. You didn't stand out. So let's talk about it quickly. No, I didn't. Then. I didn't talk. We didn't talk about Vetmont. Yeah. Given that it was Demna bringing Vetmont back to its Vetmont roots, um, and that that again was. Uh, it's funny. Remember when it, he first started, and how thrilled people were by his very existence, and. And the fact that Vetmont could show and 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 show in such 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 unique clothes with such an incredible point of view, a really fully formed um, point of view. Again, I think people have been maybe missing out a little bit on that since Martin Magella's earliest days. Um, so, was going back to the kind of origins of Vetmont? Did it work? Well, he he couldn't do the stereotypes anymore. He couldn't do that, you know, with the the airport show and the exhibition, you know, where he didn't show clothes. It just these huge big photos, and the band played. And he was really a, a drawn by that whole issue that that it's sort of it was a kind of a anthropological exercise more than a fashion exercise, showing you know all the stereotypical. You know the ar- archetypes of society couldn't do that again. I think he exhausted that, and I think maybe he felt he needed. Well, I felt anyway. He needed to remind people of Vetmont's the reason Vetmont exists with all these other people doing Vetmont. You know, the original has to step back into the ring to prove that he's the greatest, and he did a real strong Vetmont show. It it. It does look sometimes like people have plunged into a, a, a bag of, you know, a bag at the Goodwill and just popped up with whatever <laughs> whatever stuck to them draped around their shoulders. There was the, 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 there's so much in the clothes to dissect and um, uh, I guess put back together whatever way you want. I'm really really curious to see after that 
I'm curious to see Balenciaga because I feel that he's exorcising in his, I feel in his clothes, I feel in this collection, he was really exorcising something and definitely claiming ownership personally, more about Damner than about the, he used to talk about the, you know, the cooperative, the, the Vetmore cooperative. <clears throat> and I feel this time it was more um, him. Him, yeah. Yeah, and I love listening to him talk about what he does. Anyway. He's fascinating to so speak articulate. to. Yeah, and, he's, there's so yeah. few designers who can explain the thinking behind what they do so clearly. You know, whether, you know, whether you're a fan or you're not a fan, whether you think it's going to continue to work commercially and, and kind of set the fashion agenda or not, he is incredibly good at explaining what he does. I think, I think actually, if, if, I, if, if another thing that came out in Paris was possibly a consolidation uh, with him, for example, and then with other shows that I liked, um, Sakai, uh, I thought was a very strong consolidating show. If you, one thing about... By consolidating, you mean what? Well, one thing about, about designers like Chitosi Abe and about Tom, like Tom Brown, there must be moments where if you're an ardent fan, you feel like you've got everything you need. I kind of felt like that with Sakai. Yeah. And this collection, yeah, I did as well. I, I love Sakai. But after a while, you feel I've got Sakai. Mm-hmm. Um, this is actually the funny, this is the issue that, I've, that people keep waiting to confront Gucci. You know, how much Gucci can you go on buying? I, I think there's a... I saw a Gucci presentation in Milan, and I think there's a long way to go before that happens. But um, I've, the same thing with Tom Brown. And then Tom Brown does his collection, which it wasn't really Tom Brown classics, but it was classic Tom Brown. Hmm. And, and I think maybe for the first time ever, me sitting in the audience with my with, a, with a, a body which is scarcely like the ideal Tom Brown body type and, and with a personal style which hardly touches on his either. No um, Hawaiian shirts? I, well, just, you know, what am I, I like comfortable clothing. I don't want to be reminded of my um, physical failings at every turn. But uh, this was a, one collection where I actually saw stuff that I could see myself, I could imagine myself in, yeah. you know. I think, and I think that was deliberate on his part. It was... The show had a had a had a little theater in it, a, a bit of theater. The guys lying on their camp stretchers in Tom Brown sleeping bags made from gray flannel suits. I guess it was extremely theatrical by anybody else's lights, but by his it was quite subdued. And it was really fo- a real focus on um, sellable clothing, hmm. which I thought was interesting. He does have some new, quite ambitious investors. I mean, yeah. Well, that maybe that's what I was feeling. Yeah. But without without it feeling like in any way a compromise or a sellout or anything, yeah. it was just, if, if that was the first Tom Brown collection you'd ever seen, I think you'd be quite impressed and quite mm. seduced. But there was, so there was that as well. Like, mm. if, if I think about the, the other shows that, that I enjoy, you know, Alexander McQueen and so on, there was this sense of doing what we do best without necessarily softening it. But... But this isn't. This was a moment to impress on people, impress on an audience. Reassert what you're known for yeah, doing. Yeah, yeah, which has happened a lot in the whole yeah. time I've been covering fashion over the years. There have been seasons when you feel that that this is a this is this is a time to yeah reassert. 
and maybe with the economy upturning, um, that that's a, is a good moment because I guess people hope that that will translate into um, consumer confidence, mm. and they might go out shopping. Mm. So I missed all of that, but then I joined you at Couture on God. What's that Monday? Not that it even was, not Monday. even that long ago, but it feels it was, like it was, it was, so much Monday. happened in the last I seven mean, days. It was and Monday. It was Monday. Yeah. It Dior was, was first. Dior, well, Scaparelli and Iris and her. Yeah. I didn't go to, but I went to Dior. Um, what did you make of Dior? I liked it. I I I have a, such a soft spot for Maria Grazia Curie. I could have edited 20 looks out of that collection with my hands tied behind my back. It would have made it tighter and more you know, focused. It, and it would have made the good, the really good looks look better. Yeah. I really, and God knows that I'm not a, I'm not, I don't have that kind of editor's eye necessarily. But you but mentioned those domino coats. Were those your, some of your favorites? In well, that? they were just first, first looks out. The whole story this time was about the Surrealists. And, you know, she has made a very strong feminist statement with her collections at Dior, um, which have attracted a certain amount of derision in some quarters and in other quarters really connected with a clientele, I think. I um, mean, so this week, you know, in my snooping around Paris, I was told that Dior has never performed as well at retail as it is now. Yeah. So even though the industry is kind of sniffing their noses at Maria Grazia at Dior, it seems like it's really connecting with a consumer. Well, the, the, the audience, I don't know if this, how, how, how good a gauge this is, but boy, the audience was packed with yeah. women in a coat or a, or a, a, a she's, she, she's very cleverly made the clothes very recognizable. Yeah. Um, I don't know how, there was, there was a bit of a joke at one point. I was watching two girls came in who were wearing, two women came in who were wearing the same thing. And as they were having their photo taken, another woman walked past, so they drew her in. And then another woman walked past in the same coat, so they, she was a tiny bit reluctant. Because I, I guess she's standing there thinking, oh, you know, she'd thought about what she was going to wear to the Dior show. And there's Eek, Meek, and, you know, and they're, they're all saying Maybe that's why they have to have so many looks in those shows, because there's so much overlap. Otherwise. Well, no, because the looks, the looks, uh, the evening, there were, there were just... Anyway, the story of the Surrealist was uh, tied in a little bit with her, um, her, the, what she's been doing with her, you know, the, the we should all be feminists and so on, uh, T-shirt. And in, in that, the, there were very extremely strong women in the Surrealist movement, and and they were extremely strong women at the time when women in the art world were had a really hard time. And, and apparently Dior had some relationship. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. He, well, he was a gallerist before he yeah. was a designer. Yeah. And he was very friendly with a woman called Leonor Fini. Mm -hmm. um, and I think she was an Italian. That was the woman Maria Grazia mentioned to yes. us backstage. And she, if you read what she wrote and what, and, and what she said and how she approached her life, she sounds quite amazing. Um, the, the Dior had a masked ball the night of the show. And the Surrealists used to have lots of masked balls. And this is a, the whole thing about Maria Grazia, the way she wove in all these sort of Surrealist things into the collection. Like the Surrealists love playing games. They love chess. They love dominoes, presumably. So the domino coat, the chessboard, all these things. 
Now, I know there are people who say, and I've been one of them, that sometimes it feels like she just looked it all up on Google, Wikipedia. On Google, and it feels and quite Wikipedia, literal, right? And, 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 and she researched and boom, there's the research. But this time it was, it was uh, absorbed into the collection. I mean, only a windbag like me would say, oh, the Surrealists love dominoes, so she did a domino coat. You know, but, but I didn't, can't imagine anybody else would take a time of day to say that. But, um, they, you know, when she was at Valentino um, and she and Pier Paolo Piccioli used to do those beautiful medieval princess dresses, and the first time you saw them, you were like, oh my God, has there ever been anything more beautiful in fashion? The second time you saw them, you thought, oh gosh, there are those lovely princess dresses. And the third time you saw them, you went, oh. There gosh, they are again. There they are again. This time, having that surrealist reference, the surrealists love cages as well. And you think about it, they'd often be painting cages on people's faces and having a bird cage in the background and so on. Um, so she had this cage set up, which was quite fetishistic and then the models were wearing masks and it all it was you know getting getting into venus and furs country and that was tough and good and good a good a good a strong energy um made the and, and actually those looks were really some of them were really really wonderful and her, you know her technique is as usual um the technique of the atelier is, is, is incredible. Well, the one other reason I know it seems to be working, at least in some measure, is because the next day when we went to the Chanel show, a few of the Chanel PRs were asking me about Dior uh, and they're asking me about the ball the night before. So clearly the people at Chanel have been paying more attention to what's going on over there and perhaps they're feeling... you know, oh, you the, think? Oh, yeah, I mean, when... I think three different Chanel PRs asked me if I'd gone to the ball the night before, and I had gone for about five minutes. But they were they were asking. Did you wear a mask? Uh, I didn't. You carried embarrassingly, it. and I had the mask in a box, and I <laughs> I was there for such a short period, I never had the time to um put it on. But um, Stephen's masks in the show were really good. Stephen they were. Jones's, I really liked those. Stephen, yeah, yeah, those. Um, well, square he called them inverted masks yeah. because they revealed the eyes and yeah. hid the face yeah. rather than hiding the yeah. eyes. Um, yeah, they, they were. They looked. They, he did some really good work. This Mr. Arno and Mr. Toledano were both wearing masks oh, at the ball too. Interesting. And were they cleverly disguised? Well, you knew who they were. Um, <laughs> but most importantly, you know, as you observed at the show, it was all the clients, and they'd been clearly given the memo. I mean, I didn't even know there was a ball happening until I was on the Eurostar on the way to Paris. And I got an email about it, but clearly these clients had been given like a very specific advanced dress code warning. What was because this? people were wearing these huge concoctions and like feathered masks, like stretching out from their faces. And what was the sideways rain doing during the ball? Um, it wasn't raining. So no, like that chessboard outside, people were you know there was like social media moments all the way through as you walked in. Um, and maybe that's why the Chanel PRs were asking about it because there was so much of it on social media that night. Um, it was everywhere. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombus, we've always said our socks, underwear, and t-shirts are super soft. 
Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Hey everyone, it's Jen and Jess from the beauty podcast Fat Mascara here to talk about Sol de Janeiro. So many of the beauty experts we interview on our show say that the key to great skin is to treat every inch of your body with the same attention you give your face. One of our favorite ways to do that is with Sol de Janeiro's Beja Flor Elastic Cream, a rich body cream that's clinically proven to boost collagen and has been shown to improve skin crepiness on the chest in just two weeks. Plus, it's scented with Sol de Janeiro's Charosta 68 fragrance. Sol de Janeiro is offering you 10% off your first order on soldejanero.com and free shipping with the code ACAST10. That's S-O-L-D-E-J-A-N-E-I-R-O soldejanero.com and use the code ACAST10 for 10% off. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay authenticity guarantee and you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you feel like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh, every step feels fly. When it comes to style and luxury, eBay gets it. They're making sure the things you love are checked by experts. And not just any experts, specialised experts. Real people who love this stuff, with real, hands-on authentication experience. So when you see that shiny blue check mark that says authenticity guarantee, shop with confidence. Every inch, stitch, sole and logo is verified authentic through a detailed inspection. That's how you know that eBay's got your back. Because when you finally step into those sneakers, put on that watch, get your real gold glow up, swing that handbag over your shoulder or step out in that streetwear, you'll realise that feeling is unlike any other. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. You know that's the sound of another sale on your online Shopify store. But did you know Shopify powers selling in person too? That's right. Shopify is the sound of selling everywhere. Online, in-store, on social media, and beyond. Shopify POS is your command center for your retail store. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify has everything you need to sell in person. With Shopify, you get a powerhouse selling partner that effortlessly unites your in-person and online sales into one source of truth. Track every sale across your business in one place and know exactly what's in stock. Shopify helps you drive store traffic with plug-and-play tools built for marketing campaigns from TikTok to Instagram and beyond. Plus, Shopify's award-winning 24-7 help is there to support your success every step of the way. Do retail right with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash BOF, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash BOF to take your retail business to the next level today. Shopify.com slash BOF. Anyway, so we're at the Chanel show, which we should talk about as well. And um, your, your main observation was that you thought it was in a way, a response to the really successful Métier d'Arche show that took place in Hamburg in December. I feel that it gave... I feel that the show in Hamburg was so 
felt it wasn't a departure for Karl Lagerfeld, of course not. Um, the man has done everything in his career that there is that's that's possible to do almost. But it's it was so accomplished, it was so dark, it was so moody, and it was so definite. And I felt it it's been a while since Chanel had that kind of definition, his own preoccupations have, have, have been elsewhere, I feel. And the Hamburg show was so successful and, and left you with this incredible vision that it, it kind of elevated this show, which was a response, a direct response. And he said, deliberate, because he said, nothing I ever do is, is, everything I do is deliberate. He never analyzes, it's all instinct, all those things we've heard yeah. him say a thousand times. And he used the word sweetness and pretty. I've prettiness. never heard him use yeah. those words. Well, pre- you imagine prettiness as a word which would normally make him gag. But he felt that with the Macron effect in France, that um, it was a time to celebrate French, well, I suppose, a French cliche, which is prettiness. Mm. I mean, the girls, Gigi. Jolie or, madame. Yeah. Well, yeah. they weren't jolie madame, because they're more jeune fille. Yeah, jolie fille. But with it was pink pretty, lip, right? Pink lip, pink cheek, yeah. really pretty with a little posy on the head and those very sweet tweeds, sugary, um, you know, those, those Chanel tweeds that are, that are very pastel and very sparkly. I, in hindsight, I, li- I like the collection, but in hindsight, I liked it as a sort of inverted mirror image of Hamburg, which I loved. Mm-hmm. And I realized that Hamburg gave the couture collection a spine that it didn't actually have. It was because pretty isn't a spine. Pretty mm-hmm. is a pretty is a sort of, uh, I don't know what, pretty is something that goes decorative. on top of it. Yeah. It's decorative, but yeah. Well, the best part of, for me of that show was um, going backstage and spending some time with Carl, with you, and that fascinating conversation. I mean, we probably talked to him for 25 minutes. Half an hour. Uh, and he just... Well, everybody who was waiting to interview him after us was chewing on their <laughs> eyeliners in blind rage. There weren't that many people. I remember one person waiting. But um, he seems in very good spirits, Carl. Very good. And very funny. Um, and very ready to talk. I, I didn't... Sometimes lately that, that you feel pressure... Um, after a show that he he's done his work and he knows time to lie down for 10 minutes before he starts the next collection but uh that he was very very had a lot to say and it was really interesting too so i wish we wish we could have carl on our inside fashion podcast one week because um it's just those conversations where he just switches from one topic to another the thing people always ask me like what's it like to interview Karl Lagerfeld? And I say, actually, he's one of the easiest people to interview because no matter what you say to him, no matter what you ask him, he has something interesting to say. It's like he, he runs the conversation himself. I thought, this, he, I thought his stories about being a child were, were, were quite interesting. Yeah, um, well, he was talking about Hudson Kronig and then yes, he was, he was yeah, comparing yeah, himself to yeah. Hudson. Um, yeah, or well, not comp- comparing, yeah. not comparing himself yeah. to Hudson, saying what a different child he was. Yeah, what a different yes, and his jacket and tie. How he didn't play well with other children. Yeah, he didn't. Well, he wanted to. He said he wanted to be an adult all the time when he was a kid. Mm. Um, and his formidable mother. And then my biggest regret of couture is I raced off on Wednesday morning and then heard 
almost could hear the ovation after mm. the Valentino show all the way here in London. So can you tell us and tell me, because I missed it too, like what happened at that show that created this, what, like what happened? I, I went for a preview in the morning um, after Margiela and um, the, and Giancarlo Giametti came in and he, and he, <coughs> uh, Pier Paolo Piccioli had taken me into the atelier where the people were actually pressing, you know, ironing the clothes and sewing on the last beads and so on. And um, it's really in a sanctum and it's, it's just so amazing. There, there's, there's, I mean, nearly 80 women working on those clothes. And Giancarlo came in and he looked around and said, it just reminds me of 20 years ago. That, because it was just, you know, when Mr. Valentino himself was still there. Because it had that total vibe of, of couture when couture was existed to be grand. When you had ready to wear for all your other needs and couture for kapow. Yeah. And I hadn't seen a show like that for so long. And I, I don't know if, I think everybody else felt the same way. It, it, and it reminded you that you hadn't seen you had, and you, and also reminded you that you didn't really expect to see shows like that anymore because they just didn't seem that the 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 actual not the scale of the show, not the set or the anything like that. Because he just did the, it in the same space, right? Yeah, the, oh yeah. yeah. Just just the actual the actual enormity and the, the grandeur. I mean, that was the word that that um, came to my mind. But at, at the same time as there was this incredible grandeur and Philip Tracy's hats were just the most gorgeous things. They looked like these Portuguese men of war made out of ostrich feathers, just undulating on the model's head, streaming these feathers, streaming down their backs, just gorgeous. And, and then these enormous ruffles and capes and mm-hmm. things that just the kind of clothes you saw at balls, you know, in the mid, in the mid century. But then the core of the collection were things like tanks and chinos and gabardine trousers and and this this synthesis of of fantasy and reality just was and is so successful but using the best of both using the kind of awe-inspiring bits of fantasy and the and the the kind of pragmatic bits of reality but done in, in such a sort of high-end well, way you know for me you know looking at the pictures from here obviously i didn't feel the um the kind of event or you know sense of event that you, you were describing earlier but the other thing that really struck me is it had nothing to do with those princess dresses and that whole silhouette that we've become used to at valentine it's like it was completely different yeah, well, which was unexpected well, like his last couture collection, his men's collection, stately, narrow, you know, elegant, um, but not this gigantic explosion of, 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 of volume. Yeah. I mean, the kind of, the only, sometimes Jean-Baptiste Valley did it at the end of his shows, and he did it this year as well, with those tool dresses Huge. that are just, yeah. you know, 10 feet long, more than that, 20 feet wide. Yeah. And, and they always, they'd, they'd always bring his shows to a magnificent conclusion. But this, this, that sensibility just saturated this whole thing. Yeah. So when there were clothes for day, they still had 
this 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 kind of majestic quality. Um, even if it was a tank and a, I mean, he does things with fabrics that oh, it, it's me with my limited knowledge with, with washing velvet until it's like tissue paper this, and and using we're washing um, taffetas and things just until they're just so fine and then turning them into these gigantic beautiful things I mean it, it to me a statement like that takes on a kind of political weight mm. um, at this time well, I'm but so was, sorry I missed that show. Well, it was just it was it was extreme it was extremely beautiful and um, like like looking at like looking at a magnificent Renaissance painting or something, but but talking to Pier Paolo and realizing where that comes from in him that he he grew up looking at pictures in fashion magazines and the fantasy that he was getting from those images. I mean, he wanted, he told me he wanted to be a movie director, but pictures in magazines mm-hmm. made him think about being a fashion designer. That the, the power of the image was so strong, the fantasy he constructed around these images, when he actually went to Valentino and saw the dresses that he had seen in magazines, they weren't at all what he imagined they would be. And he just had this fantasy in his mind of, of these things. And, and so that's why he called the collection intimate, even though it was absolutely magnificent and grand, because it really was his fantasy of fashion, um, pure it's 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 the, it's the illusion that he had created in mm-hmm. his mind and it's you just can't imagine that anybody would have the resources on every level to to reproduce that fantasy in such a successful way and i think it just connected with everybody yeah and it also it just broke out of that formula so it was unexpected which i think a, a sense of surprise and yeah and difference surprise it's, yeah it really was surprise when yeah. that first when that first hat came out with a cape, gigantic cape mm. with a tank top mm. and chinos, mm. and people were just like, "What?" Yeah, ovation, please. Yeah. Well, the other thing that's worth noting is that while all of these couture shows were happening, there were some pretty stunning news stories that that broke right. So on Sunday morning before. The couture shows began. The news came that Hedy Sliman would be going to Celine. What do you make of that, Tim Blanks? Surprise! Not at all what the gossip had been saying. Um, I, I I was very impressed that you asked Carla whether Eddie was going to be going to Chanel. I thought he handled that extremely well. Well, I figured I should lob in the question. I mean, he was really excited. Carl was very excited about Hetty uh-huh. going to Celine. I think, uh, in you know, over the years, uh, I've I've been saying why it's been a common kind of common observation for a lot of people. If with Eddie Sliman's reputation, with Eddie Sliman's ambition, yes, he wants women's and men's wear. We know he wants to do couture. We've always known that. And we know he wants the beauty full and fragrance. Beauty and, yeah, he wants total control of and of, of fashion energy. Why not give him his own? He's got the reputation, you'd imagine, to carry it. But Celine, um, he, and Bernardo know has brought him back into the, the LVMH fold to do Celine. Uh, Phoebe Philo has 
redefined women's wear with that label and and um, uh, kept it very much uh, a kind of mirror of her own personality and her own approach to fashion and that there was never e-commerce or anything. She never was interested in that. She wanted to keep it the way she always, um, she always intended it from the beginning as this a very intimate voice speaking to women like her and and I mean incredibly successful I think uh it I thought her almost a billion euros in revenue yeah I mean, and it was about 200 million when she took over yeah incredibly successful and amazing that that such a unique person could could build such an enormous business and as a reflection of her own of, of, of herself but it obviously it just sits there fallow really in this day and age there's um so much that uh, celine has this recognition there's so much you could do with that and that's what they've given eddie to do do you think they should have appointed someone who could have continued in her aesthetic because clearly he's going to do his own thing like he's not going to do you know the phoebe philo minimalist court and like uh woman feminist feminine you know that's he's not going to do that no, no one's expecting him to it's going to be so different that I, I think there's not there won't be any point in even making a comparison so in a way celine is like a shell yeah. that was filled with meaning and identity and an aesthetic by identity. phoebe and they're they're emptying it that identity and they're going to fill it with a new one mm-hmm. and eddie slaman has Eddie Slamant is a very known quantity, uh, as Phoebe Philo was. It's not. It's so. There is no way anybody could take over what Phoebe, Phoebe Philo did. I think you saw that at Chloe already with what's happened after Chloe, her, yeah. after Claire Wake Keller left, and then Natasha took over. Um, there's Natasha is not doing what. Claire Waite Keller did. And that's on a much, much lesser, you know, much less defined level than this one. So there is, if Phoebe Filer left Celine, you're not going to say, find me another Phoebe. Mm-hmm. You're just not. That, I, I think that's very clever, actually, because it recognizes, when you, when you do see, you do see in fashion too much people saying, oh, find me another Alessandro or whatever. Uh, it, it's very clever of them to not even um, put themselves in in that position to actually just say, okay, it's going to be a totally new beast. Let's just go with that. Yeah. And he's going to do men's and perfume and couture. He has all the control that he wants, you know, which is, you know, he's, his reputation is that he wants to control everything. And I think his title is creative, artistic, and image director, which Uh is a mouthful, but really speaks to the level of control that he's going to the universe. Well, maybe, um, (laughs) For more on that, by the way, we um, Lauren Sherman wrote a really interesting BOF professional piece um, that everyone who's listening should should check out. Which what was the response to that? Really interesting. There's a whole bunch of comments underneath. There's been quite a conversation this week, you know, on our social channels and on the site um, about you know what what Hedy Sleeman at Celine really really means. So check that out. Um, the other news that broke the next day was that Netaporte, or Yuke's Netaporte, rather, um, which 
was at one time, uh, Net-A-Porte was at one time owned primarily by Richemont, then merged with Ux to become Ux Net-A-Porte. And now Richemont is going to buy the whole thing back. They owned about 50% of it, and now they're going to own the whole thing. What were people saying about that? Uh, were people talking people about it, or did it did it kind of... Yes. I mean, admittedly, if I wasn't asking questions about it, people weren't talking about it. I was curious to talk to people at Net-A-Porte about it. I would have to ask you, why, if Richemont divested themselves of their interest in Net-A-Porte, would they then at this point step back in to take over the whole thing? Was that a really long-term plan on their part? I know. Some people were speculating that this was always the plan. Um, I think, you know, probably the more, um, you know, obvious explanation is that, you know, Richemont's been struggling to grow. Like the core watches and jewelry business has you know, was really hit hard by that corruption crackdown in China. You know, watches were apparently a big part of that gifting, corporate gifting and government gifting that was happening. It really impacted the growth. And, you know, the vast majority of Richemont's businesses in that watches and jewelry segment, which has not been growing, and they needed to find a way to grow. And having already owned 50% of Uxnet-A-Porte, which is the largest player in the fastest growing definable segment in the global luxury business, which is expected to account for 25% of the global luxury market by 2025, you know, it gives them a path for growth. Mm-hmm. Um, that, for those luxury, their own luxury. Their well, p- possibly down the road if they, if they find a way of, you know, getting that digital expertise transferred over, which is not obvious to me because... Actually, they're going to continue to run Uxnet-A-Porte as a separate company. So getting synergies with their existing business is not obvious um, as to how they'll do that. But at least they'll have a part of their business that's growing quickly, which, you know, is going to be 100% consolidated into Richemont's results. So, you know, for, you know, when you have like, you know, Caring has like the stratospheric growth of Gucci and Balenciaga and LVMH just reported its results yesterday, you know, really strong growth. Wishman was just not growing. They needed they needed a rocket to grow on. And, you know, they already owned half that rocket. So um, they just bought the rest of it. So you think you'll we'll see lots more luxury watches on Nukes and Netaporto? Um, remains to be seen. I mean, there's some... I, I read this analyst report this week that said that um, there's this guy, amazing guy, Luca Solka, and they put out this report saying that actually they're not sure that people will actually buy those high-end watches on on Net-A-Porte because you can actually buy them elsewhere for cheaper. So, I mean, who knows? But what's certain is they have, you know, now got, you know, if the deal goes through, but because by the way, the deal still needs to be approved by shareholders. Um, if the deal goes through, they're going to own a big, a big chunk of that. Um, and I guess... Speaking of that, I was, I just, we just heard that Stella McCartney is looking to... Yeah, buy the rest so of a company we, from Karen. Yeah, we broke that story this yeah. morning. We had we had some sources t- telling us that um, they've been actually in active discussions recently to end the partnership. Not clear why. Um, uh, we were told uh, that the discussions have been ongoing for a while, and no decision has been made. But really interesting because it seems like Karen is, is trying to focus its portfolio you know they recently spun off announced that they were spinning off puma and they have these really fast-growing brands gucci 
Saint Laurent, Balenciaga, which are growing really quickly. And so maybe, maybe, you know, Caring's motivation is that, you know, they want to focus on those faster growing businesses. And maybe Stella's motivation is that, you know, the business is now big enough and, you know, sustainable that she can run it and grow it on her own and doesn't need the big group. I mean, it's 100% pure speculation because... um, It'd be interesting to see how many, if any people follow her in that in that can can follow her on that path yeah well the really unique thing with stella mccartney is that it's a joint venture between caring and stella mccartney so she owns 50 percent, and they own 50 percent. most of the brands owned by the luxury groups aren't 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 the, the deals aren't structured that way they own most if not all of the brands um and then most of the people who you know, share in the ownership of the brands, if they do share ownership, are probably not in a financial position to buy their entire share back. So I'm not sure it's a pattern we'll see um, frequently. Before we finish today, because that was a lot of stuff, um, I wondered, you know, the morning I left, um, this story had broken out uh, on social media about this quite... um, disturbing note that uh, Uliana Sergeyenko had sent to Miroslava Duma with some flowers the day before her show um, with a racial slur on it. And then when I was leaving that morning from Paris, another... Don't forget that Mira posted the... And she posted it on Instagram, which, you know, which seemed bad enough. But um, the morning I left, this other video resurfaced uh, on social media of Miro... Miroslava Duma giving a talk in Russian, I guess it was six years ago, to some young students in Russia, in Russian, making some quite um, shocking remarks, uh, transphobic, homophobic remarks about Brian Boy and Andrea Pezik, the transgender model. Um, I just wondered, what, what, did, what did you make of, A, how that, you know, what was said, and B, how that story seems to have exploded in the conversation on social, you know, there's a lot of quite rigorous, vigorous debate happening, uh, you know, comments, you know, it got so crazy at one point um, that, you know, several people just switched off the commenting on their, on their social feeds, including Mira herself. I, I, when I saw the, um, when I saw the original note was just the kind of, You know, it's it's since I was a babe in arms, I knew that there were there were words you just didn't use. They they were just so utterly offensive. So over the over the intervening decades, you've seen those words, um, uh, the power of them um, increase in all sorts of ways, and and it seems to me that you have to be pretty obtuse now to use those words. And then in share a, them on yeah, social in a, media, in a, in, a, in a, and then to try and uh, uh, try and rationalize it by saying this is the way we talk to each other in private. Well, and it comes from a song. Oh, yeah, my favorite Kanye West and Jay Z song. She said, um, "I can't even." Oh, I mean, uh, you know, ignorance is no excuse ever. No, it's, but it then seems, on top it, of that, yeah. that video, I was stunned because again, you just can't rationalize those attitudes and educated, um, well-traveled, I mean, educated cosmopolitan people. Um, 
the, but but holding bigotry to account and um, and all the forms of of you know hating and shaming and and abuse that that have been um, institutionalized around the world. I mean, what what we're seeing right now is this paroxysm that's enveloping every just all industries, and you know it's so overdue. Um, I, I think accountability is is accountability and a sense of consequence is what has been missing from just so much. I mean, you look at politics right now, uh, the 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 appalling things that are happening under the umbrella of of ideologies and just it, it, it is, this couldn't all come too too soon and i think the interesting thing is that what what this thing with mira has proved is that the past returns to haunt you and um i i would imagine and i would hope that there are a lot of people who are waiting for that knock on the door in the you know in the middle of the night that that digital knock on the door in the middle of the night because uh it's just a totally untenable situation that that has existed for way too long words have consequences they certainly do and actions have consequences too but i think people need to be reminded actions have consequences that are maybe a little more graphic but um but words have equally terrible consequences which is what we're being reminded of and if you're if you're a high profile person with a following um on social media and you're casually sharing racist uh, notes and comments and remarks as if it's just something that's done in passing you know it's it's really you know it's really eye-opening you know how how I just don't know how you how you end up doing that, you know, for. But just Im- imagining that anything isn't everyone's everywhere in this day. Not, not, not only the astonishing ignorance and naivety of, of the actual words themselves, but the fact that you don't appreciate that whatever you do now is everywhere, mm. whatever you do. And with like, whoever and like you said whatever you've done now yes, can end everywhere. up anywhere I mean I've I've, I've, I've I've sat at dinners over the years or, or been at a party or something and somebody has said something to me I said are you sure you really want me to hear what you just said are you sure you want to be saying that to people and you realise to other people you, you know you realise how utterly genetic or ingrained, I don't know if it's genetic, but ingrained opinion, some opinions are. And that can only change with with this... I mean, she has been hit where it hurts. Do you think she can recover from this? Well, we're also looking at, at all those other people right now who are being who are being held up to a... Bruce to a Weber, Mario Testino. Can they recover? I mean... And um, apparently, Tim, I'm sure you've heard the same thing. People are saying there's more. Boston Globe this weekend, I was told. But um, oh, really? What's what? Oh, well, that, this is we didn't talk about the gossip, the the, friend, the frenzied speculation about everyone and everything that just lit a fire under under this whole season so far. Yeah, the Boston Globe's running a story, and um, apparently photographers. Um, mm. um yeah, I, I, I mean. 
they're being hit where it hurts, where they make their money. And that, you would imagine, is, what is probably the only way that some people are going to realize that they cannot say and do what they've been saying and doing and getting away with it for years and years. That yeah. actually, uh, and then when the, and the people using the word witch hunt, well, you know what? You live by the sword, you, you will die by the sword. I prefer to use the word reckoning because yeah, I think this yeah. year, I mean, it feels like it's going to be a year of reckoning. Yeah, and not. I hope it's decades because you're looking at hundreds and hundreds of years of uh, the the kind the kinds of behavior that are being that, that are being exposed uh, are not they're not new behavioral patterns. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know this thing at the men's club. I mean, how how many centuries has and that, that been just going happened on? last week? Yeah, can you imagine yeah. in this climate that's happening? Anyway, um, you know when when the whole uh, the whole you know this is a man's world. Um, I think hopefully we're going to be working or working our way towards a point where it isn't hmm. where it's a world for everyone. So uh, I don't know how long that's going to take, and I really hope this isn't some you know this isn't some momentary. I this don't think this, it is. This I, reckoning can't be this year. It has to be this decade, this century. I feel to... like this is a watershed moment shift in time. I hope it is. I mean, I think that's one, you know, while it's quite depressing to see some of these stories come out and to see some of these, that this video that's come out this week um, and who knows what else is out there. The, the way I look at it with kind of one sense of optimism is that without this kind of reckoning we can't move on mm-hmm. and it feels like for whatever reason there's something in the world right now you know whether it be in our industry or in politics or in silicon valley uh, you know in into the entertainment world in the music industry whatever it might be there is a wider reckoning happening and without that reckoning um, we don't progress as a society and as a people. What's been, a, uh, what's been disheartening, though, is in all those other industries where this has been happening, um, there's been a lot of uh, falling on swords and, and, and apologies. And, and taking and responsibility. Taking, take, being, being, uh, being held accountable, being, yeah, taking responsibility. So far, what we've had in fashion is a whole mass of denial. And very hollow apologies. Yeah, which is a little... Which is a little depressing it is depressing and i think you know what we said in our weekly briefing last week on bf professional was that in a way we're all guilty because um you know there's been an an enablement and maybe that's why it's taking longer for our you know for these people to take ownership and responsibility for what they've done because everyone has some has had a role to play in enabling these, this kind of behavior or tolerating this beha- kind of behavior or not calling out people when they say something absolutely unacceptable or ridiculous. And so, but I really believe that unless unless the people who have been perpetrating these ass, acts, um, the predators, the abusers, unless they take responsibility, the whole industry is just stuck. Mm. So anyway, on that somewhat less positive note... Thank you, Tim. It is positive. Like I said, this yeah. is a time of transition. Yeah. Um, well, I hope so. And I, I, I want it to be that. 
It's good chatting with you. Good chatting with you. I, I ran my mouth there a little bit. We should have had more dialogue. Oh, it was good. Well, you know, next time you you can quiz me a bit. Next more. time you'll go to Valentino, we can both talk about it. Exactly. Well, have a good afternoon. Thank you. You um, too. Thank you. And uh, that's all from us here at BOFHQ. There's been a bit of noise in the background. Sorry about that. You know, we're literally sitting in my office. So um, make sure you tune in for our next episodes of the BOF podcast. And uh, hope you enjoyed our first conversation inside fashion. I'm Imran Ahmed, the founder and CEO of the Business of Fashion with Tim Blanks, our inimitable editor at large. Uh, And we'll be back with you soon for another episode. Bye. Bye. If you enjoyed today's podcast and would like more of our informed, analytical, opinionated analysis on fashion, which is what BOF has become known for, think about signing up for BOF Professional. Our BOF Professional members receive access to all of our content, exclusive deep dive articles, all of our analysis, and of course, fashion reviews by Tim Blanks. And you'll get to be up to date on everything that's happening on fashion and have our smart take on what it all means. You can sign up for BOF Professional on www.businessoffashion.com. Do you love anime, gaming, movies, and discovering how your favorite pop culture affects everything you do? Then join us on Crunchyroll Presents The Anime Effect. I'm Nick Friedman. I'm Lee Alec Murray. And I'm Leah President. Every week you can listen in while we break down the latest pop culture news and dish on what new releases we can't get enough of. Whether you love movies, I'm going to tell you all about the uh, hopeful 4K re-release of Tron Legacy that happens. (laughs) (laughs) I'm right there with you. Or music. The music in this show is absolutely incredible. Or anime. And under this mask is... Another mask. <laughs> you can discover your new favorites right here on The Anime Effect. Listen every Friday wherever you get your podcast, and watch full video episodes on Crunchyroll or on the Crunchyroll YouTube channel. Hey everyone, it's Jen and Jess from the beauty podcast Fat Mascara here to talk about Sol de Janeiro. So many of the beauty experts we interview on our show say that the key to great skin is to treat every inch of your body with the same attention you give your face. One of our favorite ways to do that is with Sol de Janeiro's Beige Flor Elastic Cream, a rich body cream that's clinically proven to boost collagen and has been shown to improve skin crepiness on the chest in just two weeks. Plus, it's scented with Sol de Janeiro's Charosta 68 fragrance. Sol de Janeiro is offering you 10% off your first order on soldejanero.com and free shipping with the code ACAST10. That's S-O L-D-E-J-A-N-E-I-R-O soldejanero.com and use the code ACAST10 for 10% off.